0: Welcome back to Word and Table, a weekly podcast on liturgy, sacrament, and the great tradition of Christian worship and why it is vital in our world today. I'm your host, Alex Wilgus, and I am here, as always, with Father Stephen Gauthier. Welcome back, Father Stephen.
1: Great to be back, Alex.
0: Father Stephen is the canon theologian of the Diocese of the Upper Midwest in the Anglican Church in North America, and he is director of formation at St. Paul's House of Formation in the Greenhouse Movement. Father Stephen, today let's talk about the Dead Sea Scrolls, and I'm no great biblical scholar, uh, and I I didn't grow up in a community of great biblical scholars either, but listen, all of us had heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls, Um, uh, and it was a discovery in the last century that um, was really seismic for our study of scripture. Um, So let's just, let's go ahead and talk about, first of all, what's the state? of uh, the reliability of the sacred texts before the the discovery of the Dead Sea scrolls. Let's talk about the discovery itself and then um what the the state of everything is after uh now that we have these things. And especially why are this why is this important to us as Christians?
1: Well, let's think about just after the Second World War. Let's say if we're just 1945, 1946. If we ask the question of basically, okay, we know the Old Testament, right, is is really, really old. It goes way back. But what's the oldest version we have of this? I mean, what's the oldest version we have of the Old Testament? The oldest complete version we have of the Old Testament goes back to the 4th century B.C., but it's not in Hebrew. It's a translation of the Hebrew. It's the famous um, uh, Septuagint, which we saw the Bible of the 70s, because there was actually uh, folklore with this, by the way. It had to be sort of a miraculous event. What had happened was in Alexandria, a lot of Jews no longer lived in the Holy Land, and they lost the use of... of they, couldn't, they couldn't read Hebrew. Hebrew was a dead language, essentially, by this time. But they didn't know Aramaic anymore. They, they lived. You know, it's like people who move to North America. They lose their, their languages often. Mm-hmm. Almost always they lose their languages. So here you yeah, had these people are good Jews, but they didn't, they, they were, they, they spoke Greek. And so they wanted the Bible in their own language. And so they, they had a translation of the Bible, uh, fourth century BC, and they called the Bible the 70s. Here's the story. Was well, if you actually work with translations, you'd realize translations are never exact. Right. And so to make this sort of quasi-miraculous, they said they had 70 scholars, you know, independently write translations. They came together and found out they were identical. Yeah. That simply cannot happen. I mean, <laughs> if you're a bilingual, you realize that that cannot happen, but it's a good story. But the point was, this is called the Septuagint or the Bible of the 70s. Sometimes in your Bible, you'll see something LXX for Latin for 70. Mm-hmm. Now, this is the oldest complete version we have of the, the Old Testament. But, and it's, it's very old, but you know, it's not in the original language. It's a translation. Yeah, it's a translation. So you say, okay, well, what's the for oldest version of the actual underlying text, the Hebrew. The Hebrew is from the 10th century AD. Mm. Imagine that. The 10th century AD is the first complete Hebrew text of the Old Testament by the group called the Masoretes. Okay. And so that's called the Masoretic text. So basically you're saying, wait a second, how reliable is that text? Because, you know, people used to copy books. And so unlike printing, people make mistakes. And people are doing this all sorts of different places in life. So how do we know how accurate that text is? Well, one thing that caused people to have suspicions was look in the New Testament. Have you ever sometimes looked up a a quotation that Paul gives in his epistles? And then you look up in the Old Testament, it doesn't seem quite the same thing when you go to the Old Testament.
0: Yes, yes.
1: You see, with are exceptions, Paul actually quotes both in different, but he normally quotes the Greek version of the Bible. Which often has substantial differences from, uh, you know, that way in those quotations from what we have in the Hebrew. So if you look in your Bible and you look back in the quote where it's from, you say, "Well, it's not really the same quote." Yeah. So we can see that there were certainly differences, and this led to two different basic views that came up between the Western and the Eastern Church. The Eastern Church says, "Look, we know that Paul's divinely inspired, and he's qu- and he's quoting from this Greek translation, and it is the oldest version of the Bible." So to this day, the Greek church holds uh, the Orthodox churches that the Septuagint is the authorized Bible. Mm. (laughs) Now, in the West, we didn't buy that. We said, wait a second. The Bible was originally written, was inspired in Hebrew. And therefore, ideally, this uh, Jerome really emphasized that in the West, is the Hebrew text is what's really important. The Hebrew text.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: So the question became, well, how do we resolve this then? We think ideally it should be the original, not a translation, the original but then again, we know there are differences in things. How how reliable is that text, which is actually over a thousand years, the oldest text is over a thousand years after it's written? And again, this we're not talking about printing, we're talking about people copying. Yeah. And so the amazing thing happens. Talk about a story. In 1947, there's a goat herd, you know, just north of the Dead Sea. You know, he's just going with his goats. And he basically, I think a goat went down this hole and he, he's going to see down there. He, he tosses a rock down this, this little cave you know, the entrance to a cave. And surprisingly, instead of hearing bleeding, what he hears is he hears a, like a clay pot crack. What? Hmm. That's not what you hear. I'm sure he's throwing stones about it. He heard something break. He had to go see this. So he climbs down in there and he finds this ancient pot and it's broken. Sure enough, his rock did the job but it's filled with really old manuscripts. Wow. And so he knows that there's a real market for old stuff, for people who come to Jerusalem and things. They want to buy old stuff, take home the souvenirs and things, you know, manuscripts <laughs> and things. So he goes and wants to sell the stuff, and people realize, oh, my, where'd, where'd you get this? Yeah. <laughs> this is the real deal. This is really, this is, like, really old. Yeah, this
0: is, like, some <laughs> Indiana Jones the, yeah, stuff. Yeah, this yeah. is
1: the real thing. And so what happens here, so where do these come from, by the way? What they came for is, remember, the Romans will actually destroy J- Jerusalem. The, the great, what they call the Jewish Wars, how it's described by the, the historian Josephus, who was a Jewish historian. Mm-hmm. They come and actually burn down the temple and destroy Jerusalem. So, when the Roman armies are in the process of doing this, there's a group of people we know who lived out here, lived, you know, the Dead Sea, a Jewish group, a Jewish sect, we say like a denomination. Yeah. They're different. Judaism was not monolithic. Right. And they were sort of an uh, uh, an unusual sect, an unusual group of people. And so, what they did is, with the Romans coming, they didn't want their their manuscripts to be destroyed, you know, their holy books. So they decided they put them in the past to hide them until danger was past, and they could go back and pick them up.
0: So he finds a bunch of old um, parchments, but I mean, this is this is like this is this is a couple thousand years old. How? do these things survive? You know, doesn't paper and stuff break down?
1: Yeah, and you're right. And anywhere else it would. But one of the glorious things, like why Egypt is so rich in treasures and things, is when you're in a really, what really destroys things like parchment is water. You know, humidity mm-hmm. and water would destroys everything. Think about when you put stuff, the documents in like the garage or the attic or something, what happens. Right. <laughs> or like the garage or the basement and things. Humidity is what really is the enemy of, of, of paper and things. And so this place, if you've been to the Dead Sea, you know this, you think you knew dry until you're at the Dead Sea. Yeah. Yeah. That's what dry <laughs> looks like all around there. That's really a desert. And so ironically, so what happens here is they, these things actually have survived, you know, they were hidden and they survived, but the people never were able to get back. I mean, the Romans did a pretty thorough job.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So
1: they, they hid these treasures, but they never were able to come back for them. Wow. And they're in perfect condition. I mean, that's I mean, exaggerating, but they're in really good condition. I mean, what we could expect after this amount of time. They're in great condition. They could not happen anywhere else because of this unusual... They were they were in these pots. They were in an extraordinarily dry desert place. It never got wet. So that's what we have here. And it came from this this radical Jewish group. Now... What ha- this group I should tell you is sometimes people jump Josephus who's, everyone's read Josephus you know the, about the Jewish wars and he was talking about different Jewish groups he talks about the Pharisees had, he says but there's a group called the Essenes and so a lot of people you know back at that time said this must be the Essenes yeah you know this must be those people people don't really think that uh, it's not what people thought you know a lot of people the best way is to call it the Qumran community hmm. the, the actual name of the place is called Qumran is because that's really making a jump. We don't have evidence for. Sure. We don't know these people were scenes, but they had a lot of similarities. But we don't know that, so we call it the Qumran community.
0: So, how how many? So tell me about the 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 excavation. Like how how many documents do we have? How long does it take to to get them all out?
1: Well, it takes about 10 years to explore 11 different cases. Because once you start going, it's just everywhere. I mean, it's like digging. For, well, you down in Texas there, you know, like drilling for oil. Got some <laughs> everyone's drilling. Everyone has, has yeah, of yeah, things yeah. on their yard. And they find over 1,000 documents. Now, let me be careful what I mean by document. Over 1,000 documents. We have some really great stuff, whole books. Like we have a whole scroll of the book of the prophet Isaiah. You can see that at the, at the great, you know, the museum in Israel. You know, in Jerusalem, this, uh, you actually have the room there for this for the scroll. Uh, the Book of Psalms, we have that. Deuteronomy, we have a number of books, whole books. But most of them are just like a page out of a book, uh, you know, even though it's a scroll. I mean, it's the equivalent of what we say, but roughly about a page of material. There's, they're fragments. Yeah. Okay? So we have a 1,000 different pieces of documents, and some of them are the whole thing. Great doc- But most of them are fragments of documents. Like imagine like a piece of a, a page of a Bible type of thing. Mm-hmm. They didn't have pages as we know, but, you know, something equivalent to that. A small amount. And what you find is that about 40% of all this material, all, if you take those documents by document, you'd find about 40% of them are actually books of the Bible. Yeah. So, you know, there'd be a portion, oh, I recognize this. These are a few verses out of Esther. And no, that's the wrong thing to say. She's the only, that's the only book of the Bible that's not in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Right,
0: right. Huh.
1: <laughs> Every other book in the, in, the, in the Old Testament is there except Esther. Fascinating. Remember, Esther was a problem child because it never actually mentions yeah,
0: God. Yeah, it doesn't mention God at all.
1: Yeah, so this is sort of a problem, child. So it's not—it's easy to explain why Esther didn't make sure. it uh, here. Okay, but that's the, the story with Esther. So we have out of these 40% are actually uh, sometimes whole books, but sometimes uh, you know just like a page or so or a few lines of different books. And we have every book of the Bible representing the Old Testament except for Esther. Mm-hmm. Then we have about 10%, another 10% are Apocrypha. And I don't, I don't just mean that in a generic term. These are books we know elsewhere like Book of Jubilees, that kind of thing. Yeah. So we have pieces of apocrypha that are known from elsewhere. They're books we know. And then 50% are specific to this group of people. It was a religious sect that had a lot of their own stuff. Okay. And we give yeah. names to it. we call it the Temple Scroll and things. Those are made-up names. We made those names. But to describe, they try. Okay. <laughs> but it was a, you know, um, it was a, a radical Jewish group.
0: Yeah. So, okay, So, so how does what we have in what we had in 1947 how does it how does it hold up to these original texts
1: well everyone was surprised even the the people who are most saying most hopeful never dreamed we'd have the results we had because we would think after a thousand years we would expect we'd have a lot of disparities we'd hope they wouldn't be too serious in things but a lot of disparities with all this copying what we actually find is there are only minor differences huh it reaffirmed our best possible hopes for the reliability of the standard text of the Old Testament the Masoretic text I my Wow okay it was beyond our hopes
0: so it vindicates the Maser- the Masoretic text
1: yes yeah which is the tenth? 10th, that tenth-century 10th version right, we have, which right. became the definitive text of the Hebrew Bible. So
0: was the mat- copying, you know, copying and copying and copying isn't so bad of a of a method. It turns out.
1: Well, it certainly can be, but I think something's really helped. Let me tell you what goes against and what goes for it. Okay, what goes against the copying, frankly, is the language issue. Yeah, uh, there's funny. Um, I once read a, 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 a an article that was really impressive to me. It was actually from um, having to do with actual bookmaking and things. And they talked about the trouble in England when we tried to get the Bible into English is before the Reformation, they didn't want unauthorized translations of the Bible and they weren't willing to authorize any. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So people who wanted to get Bibles and smuggle them to England, like Tyndale and things, would have to have them printed in places where people didn't actually speak English. So they were typesetting in a language which wasn't theirs.
0: Mm. Okay, yeah.
1: Yeah, And so you have funny things. I have things that are actually called what people actually sell old books. Like, you know, the printer's Bible. You say, what's the printer's Bible? Well, the Bible says, princes have persecuted me without cause in the book of Psalm.
0: Uh-huh.
1: Well, some Dutch uh, Dutchman who did this typesetting didn't know the word, but he knew the word printers. Okay. So he could, printers have persecuted me without <laughs> cause. So they call that the printer's Bible.
0: Oh, that's funny. There
1: was another, we had a guy where instead of saying sin no more, it says sin on more.
0: <laughs>
1: uh, in Isaiah yeah, they call that the sinner's bible yeah. but what happens when people don't know the language they make mistakes that people wouldn't make I mean I've got to tell you every it is rare I have seen any quotation of the French language in the English language press that does not have a spelling error <laughs> I'm shocked given it's a major western European language but honestly it's just shocking to the degree um, it's always wrong something's always wrong yeah yeah the most no no expression is too simple <laughs> that's amazing so we have people are dealing with this one thing that impresses me though if you actually look at a a manuscript of torah one thing that really helps out is for example you have in the middle of the manuscript there's a little they have these side commentaries and one of them says uh this is the middle letter of the torah yeah is one of the ways to check they hadn't made a mistake they actually counted the number of letters Oh wow! (laughs) It's like footing and cross footing. These people. This was not casual. That sounds like
0: when you get in trouble in first grade and you have to write uh, on the board over and over and over again. You know, I will not throw rocks or whatever.
1: (laughs) Yes, but this is like this is the word of God. They didn't matter. Another thing that really encourages you is you have something when you read the text in the in an actual manuscript. You know, a rather a scroll of the Torah. It'll have things like the kare, which which means saying. I know this is what we wrote, but you can't, that's obviously wrong, but we can't actually change the text. So here's what you should read when you're reading it out loud.
0: Ah, uh, yes, yes. So they actually
1: tell you, even though this is what the text says, this wouldn't make any sense. So when you read it out loud in synagogue, say this, but we're, we're never going to actually amend the text. That's the word of God. Sure. Every letter. We're not going to change a letter.
0: So the, so the sanctity of the, of the text goes in favor of its proper translation
1: whereas with uh with other types of manuscript people in the ancient world felt free to edit
0: yeah to make <laughs> things
1: better they really felt better like i could do this better <laughs> <laughs> i mean you find it all the time when you actually look at ancient, ancient like texts. yeah exactly they thought "Yeah, this is good and they there was no sense of copyright there was no sense of plagiarism so people just took other people's stuff and made it better yeah okay yeah so what we really found was the reliability of our Hebrew Old Testament which is really big out in the West we insisted that, and that we called it the Hebraica Veritas that's the term of of, uh, of St. Jerome meaning the, the Hebrew truth that's where the truth lies in the, ori- the original version
0: that's right we've talked about that before
1: <laughs> right uh, but this really vindicated our belief so yes there are there are changes but they are so minor I mean nothing nothing of any great import I mean that would just change anything substantive wow Minor things.
0: That's amazing. Yeah. What about um? You talked about the other fifty percent of the texts being kind of like the in-house publications of this particular community. Did we learn anything from there? Well, that's that's a neat
1: thing about being an old man. Is when this stuff is first coming out and things. You know, people are all talking about when they're still doing the work and the coming like in the in the early sixties stuff, you're sort of really getting copies of these things that regular people could look at and like. Everyone was worried about the the reliability of the Hebrew text. Mm. but now after that that's just taken as a given what people now in the long run say what's well, even better in some ways <laughs> uh better is exaggerated but just as important is it tells us a whole lot more about the world of Judaism at the time of Jesus mm. what we call intertestamental Judaism yeah second test you know second Temple Judaism
0: Second Temple Judaism yeah uh,
1: it's really incredibly helpful because a lot of things uh, for example people would argue based on later, jewish emphases and things that the idea of a of of a jew not marrying violates the first commandment of the torah was unthinkable no one could have come up with such an idea okay yeah well here we have a group of people that we can read from themselves contemporaneously they they were celibates yeah yeah (laughs) so the idea clearly there was there were different opinions on things you know Uh, they were very interested for christians they had the same interest that we have in christianity Uh, they were really getting into the messianic issue Hmm. they certainly thought the temple was corrupt. I mean the group there clearly uh, thought the temple was being mismanaged. Yeah. But it gives us a really different flavor of what did Judaism look like at the time of Jesus and the time of Paul. Right.
0: Oh, that's fascinating. So there's it's not just this one thing. There's a lot of divergent opinions on on life. Sort of sort of like sort of like modern life. <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, oftentimes, um, when part of your um, the impression you give people is being old and unchanging, people often get very false impressions. For example, Roman Catholics before the Second Vatican Council often thought of the Tridentine Mass, which is actually the product of Pius V, you know, back in the 16th century, as somehow this is what you would have seen in the catacombs. Right, right. <laughs> no, I mean, it's had a history, but very often they, they really played on the, how ancient things were, things that really aren't very ancient. Yeah. Like you think about Jews wearing these funny little hats, right? We call them yarmulkes, you know, uh, you know, or kippas. The the Jews wearing hats and things is only about three hundred years old, right? Right. I mean, they would, you know, a lot of things we think of Jews have always done that is not true. I mean, a lot of tradition sort of develops in relatively modern times. It would be a mistake to think very often there's a desire within the group they themselves treasure the idea that this is unchanging, and there's just been a whole lot of changes. And what really happens is the Judaism before uh, before the destruction of Jerusalem is pretty, uh, as we see in the New Testament, the Pharisees and Sadducees didn't have much in common. Right. They yeah. didn't much like each other. Their religion was radically different in many ways. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but we get the impression because what happens is the Sadducees, remember, were set in the temple. When the temple's gone, their history. their toast. Yeah. Their business is over. Exactly. <laughs> Whereas uh, the Pharisees win all subsequent right. Judaism comes from the Pharisees. Right. So they win, they're the winners. And so, you know, they, you know, everything after that is really much narrower than the Judaism we would have seen at the time of Jesus.
0: Yeah. At the at the risk of um of editorializing it, there's there's almost a lesson there, right? The the Pharisees were the ones that had um really set up the synagogue system and yes. they were more they were more uh in the in the people and uh s- and spread out and grassroots, right? So they're the ones who Yeah, the trouble
1: off. with Judaism, um says uh, Sadducees form of Judaism was top heavy. Yeah. If yeah. if you depend completely on a temple and you don't have a temple, you're pretty much out of business. Sure.
0: <laughs>
1: if it's not coming back anytime soon. Yeah. As where the Pharisees, they you know, the, the the synagogue was meant as a substitute when there's no reasonable hope, who knows if we're gonna have a temple again. Mm-hmm. Uh and so the Pharisees were set to go.
0: Sure. Yeah. Well, thanks so much, Father Stephen. This is super interesting. I'm sure we could uh, extend this conversation way longer than our welcome, but you have anything, any last words for us on the uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls?
1: Again, I think I can't overemphasize, you know, sometimes we, we we come to things saying, this would be so unlikely. And I've got to admit, before the Dead Sea Scrolls, the idea of how reliable our texts were, we know they'd be basically reliable, you know, things, but over a thousand years of copying and things, how do we know? And wow, this is better than our wildest dreams of how how good the preservation process was.
0: Over we sleep, we well, thanks so much, Father Stephen. Thank you for listening to Word and Table. We'll be back for more on liturgy, sacrament, and the great tradition of Christian worship in another week. Thanks for listening.